Hi, everybody. Welcome to Artifice episode 55 and the third and final episode in my little Boise series. Uh, when you guys are hearing this today, the Indiegogo campaign for masks will have finished, um, but I'm recording this a week early. So at this point in time, I don't know how it's ending. But, um, you know, at this point, I kind of feel like it doesn't really matter. Um, I feel so happy to have had the support that I've had from all the people who um, who have been supportive. And I, I do also feel like if we weren't in a global crisis, um, it would have been fully funded like right away. So, um, so I, I, I feel, I feel good about all of it and I'm ready to, um, I'm ready to focus on the digital launch. So I've talked about it a little bit, but I want to just tell you guys more. So the digital launch is all delivered over email and I have, I don't want to give away all the secrets, but I have been, I've spent, you know, probably the last six months building this awesome, like hidden web series um, that I am not going to post publicly anywhere. You only get to see it if you're on the mailing list. Um, and there's, there's tons of art there that I haven't even talked about publicly. Um, and it's going to be interactive and, it's really cool. Um, I, I built every small, small piece of it and it's, it's all, uh, centering around the music, but there's, there's a whole lot more. So if you want to be involved in that, all you have to do is go to emvocals.com slash invite hyphen only emvocals.com slash invite hyphen only. And, um, there are, I mean, when you guys are hearing this, the, the creative challenges and, and giveaways from like the pre-launch will have ended. Um, but uh, but you'll you'll kind of jump in right in time for like the big, big launch thing. And again, I'm not going to post about any of these specifics on Facebook or Instagram or anything. So if you want to if you want to see what's there, you got to be on the mailing list. Um, and it's going to be it's going to be really special and really cool. I I. I can't wait for people to see it. Um, yeah, it's big. I, I don't know what else to say without giving more away, but it's but it's going to be awesome. Um, today's guest, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. It is my friend, Jeff Baker. Um, Jeff is an incredible, incredible vocalist and jazz musician, and he is involved in so much cool stuff. So I'll let him, you know, I'll read his bio and then I'll also just let him tell you more in our interview. Um, but man, what a great, what a great guy. Um, I think that's all I want to say for like the intro and everything before I read Jeff's bio. Um, yeah, now I'm just, now I'm just rambling. Okay. He here's Jeff's bio. Called one of the best male vocalists in the jazz world today by WCLK in Atlanta, Jeff Baker has quickly become one of the most significant talents in the next generation of jazz vocalists. His diverse musical recordings, exciting live performances, and infectious energy and personality have gained him accolades from critics and listeners alike. Baker has headlined numerous festivals and clubs and has shared the billing and played with some of jazz music's top artists, including Ray Brown, Gene Harris, Brian Blade, John Patitucci, Steve Wilson, Bobby Hutcherson, Carla Cook, Marquis Hill, the Yellow Jackets, Mose Allison, Kenny Werner, Joe DeFrancesco, Joe LaBarbera, Bruce Barth, Daryl Grant, Karen Allison, Nancy King, Henry Butler, Dave Frischberg, uh, Gene Harris is on here twice. 
Jeff, you need to edit your bio. Orrin Orin Evans, Clark Summers, George Colligan, Randy Moore, and many more. Randy Porter and many more. I'm reading too many things. Um, you guys, for those who aren't jazz people, that list is that list is crazy. It's a crazy list. Um, I'm going to read you one more paragraph. Jeff has performed throughout the U.S. and has enjoyed performance engagements in Central Europe and South Africa. His four critically acclaimed CD releases on the Origin Records imprint have charted on the Jazz Week International Radio Top 50, have been played on over 200 stations internationally, were top five on NPR's nationally syndicated Jazz Works radio program, and were number one on stations in Chicago, Boston, Los Angeles, Atlanta, Portland, Buffalo, St. Louis, Cape Town, South Africa, and New Zealand. Um, and Jeff lives in Boise um, as of now, and he does a million other things. He does so many things. So, um, you guys, I hope you have enjoyed the Boise series. I hope you are um, going to enjoy this last, last little bit of the Boise series. It is such a joy and such an honor. Here comes Jeff Baker. Sometimes art feels like magic, pure, visionary. And sometimes it's brought to you in part by focus groups and algorithms. And the makers of art are no different. We're creatives, sure, but we're also salespeople. We need imagination and imitation. We need deep, meaningful connections. But we also have to network. Yep, even if you're an introvert. And that's my point. Balancing vulnerability with veneer is tricky, and it's a struggle we don't often share. So let's share. I'm Emily Merrill, and this is Artifice. Today's episode of Artifice is brought to you by The Voice Straw. Back in episode 36, I interviewed Justin Timberlake's voice teacher, the amazing Mindy Pack. Mindy just launched this incredible new product designed to improve the quality of singing and vocal performance through science and proper technique. The Voice Straw is a vocal training tool for singers, actors, and speakers. It helps relieve tension, strain, breathiness, cracking, and flipping in the voice. Scientifically shown to improve singing technique, a must-have tool for anyone looking for vocal success. Head to www.voicestraw.com and enter promo code ARTIFICE10, that's all caps, A-R-T-I-F-I-C-E-1-0, for 10% off your purchase today. But uh, I like to start with people at the beginning of their lives. So the first thing I always ask is, tell me what you were like as like a creative child doesn't have to be music specific just like what were you doing as a little kid yeah that's such a that's such a great question actually that's a really cool question um one thing i mean since you're since we're sitting here at my parents house this is very uh, apt because it's like a little meta yeah so i used to have um what my my parents referred to as this like circuit okay so right here there okay. used to be a door that was there and on top of the door was like a Nerf basketball hoop. So okay. this was like a basketball arena. Sure, I'm picturing it. Um, in here, which is now a music room, was an old um, Texas Instrument video game console. So this is like not enough money for an Atari sure. at all. So we had the Texas Instrument, that. so I'd play in there. And then my my bedroom was down the hall to the right, and so I had like toys in there. 
and then it was outside. And so almost every single day, and there was an old upright piano in here too. So almost every single day, that was just it. It was like one thing to the next. Yeah. Like I was playing basketball in the living room and then I'd get bored and I'd go practice piano yeah. and I'd get bored. And I'd play video games and then I'd go outside. I'd shoot hoops, like just different. And it was just kind of, you were buzzing around, yeah, which is like also all... what you're doing now, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're a buzzy or busy kind of a person. Yeah. I, um, I had a, uh, I had a psychiatrist describe it as, um, uh, I'm a sprinter. Yeah. Like, and cause yeah. it, and it was all about like most of the problems of my life arose because I was a sprinter and I had worked my way into the existence of a marathon runner. Mm. And so I was mm. constantly trying to sprint oh, yeah. and then break down and then I can't do anything for a while. And then I sprint again. So that is so relatable. It, yeah. It's super, it was super yeah. eye opening for me because I was like, Oh, you're exactly right. Like teaching for example, yeah. is a marathon existence. Yeah. You have to pace yourself. You have to, you like set up a very predictable schedule that yeah. happens kind of the same every year. And I was constantly sprinting from one thing to the next and then just wearing myself out. But that's a I feel totally like tangential. I think I might be like, I'm totally relating to this type of feeling only. I think maybe I'm the opposite. Like I'm, I'm such like a slow burn kind of a worker. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I can see the end of a project like three years in advance and I love that. But then sometimes I put like that amount of energy into projects that like really don't deserve it. That are mm. like, they should be like short turnarounds. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I totally, I totally can relate to like having projects that are like the wrong fit for like your personal, whatever it is. Yeah. Well, and understanding yeah. not only, it's not, a, not just understanding our limitations, but it's understanding like the places and the things that we thrive yeah. doing. Like, understanding your, your strengths yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. So, um, with the, so you were already playing piano. Is the piano like something where like everyone in the family learns it or did you have to kind of like advocate for piano lessons? No, I mean, I, so my grand, both of my grandmothers were very, very musical. Okay. Um, my parents, not particularly musical. Yeah. Um, my dad was an athlete, played multiple sports, was really, really good wrestling and football and everything like that. And, um, and my mom was like a self-described nerd. I mean, she hung out cool. with the smart kids. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, but the amazing thing about my childhood was that when we showed my sister or myself, when we showed an interest, interest or a propensity for something, we were always given access to it. I love that so much. It's so simple. I mean, it's privilege too. Yes. Um, but like even within privilege, like it's such a simple thing to give your child. Yeah. I mean, and I'm sure there's also like a, a bit of a way to do it. If you don't have, you know, the money for a piano, even just to say like this interest that you have is valuable. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's huge. Well, and I like, so I did, um, I did the Yamaha group piano classes Okay. because we couldn't afford piano lessons. Okay. Yeah. Right? So I would go once a week to this room that had, you know, 15 keyboards set yeah. up at tables and you're all playing at the same time yeah. and all that kind of stuff. What's interesting about the fact that that was m one of my first experiences was 
I was in an ensemble and group mindset yeah. from the get-go. That's awesome. Which is, it's, it's yeah. kind of fascinating, right? Like, yeah. um, it wasn't about, I didn't relate playing music to this very insular, uh, a lo- thing that I did by myself. Yeah. Like it was like, Oh, it's time That's to play music. So I need to go find other people. How old were you? Uh, I was started that pretty class. young when I started doing Yamaha piano. I want to say like six. Okay. Yeah. Six or wow. seven. Yeah. And then when did you, when did you get the upright? The upright had been in the family okay. for a long time. Okay. It was, it was, um, it was an old, uh, salon piano. So it wasn't even a full upright piano. Um, and you know, the other thing that's interesting is I think because, because I started with that approach, I didn't start actual piano lessons until I was about maybe 10, yeah, 10 or 11. Um, so this whole notion of playing music, like being able to yeah. just go sit and play yeah, and not really having a, you know, like, oh, you need to do this and you need to do this. So you get this sticker in the book and you right. move on to that. Yeah. Like, that sometimes I wish I'd had more, more structure for sure. Wish I'd had more structure at the same time. When I arrived later in life at jazz, not just as a music that was interesting to me, but also just thinking about improvisation as a way of life. Yeah. It was something that prepared me for that. Oh man, that's so it's, I'm so glad that you like can articulate that to yourself. And I imagine that this also helps you as a teacher when you're working with students who didn't have that experience to go like, I can understand that like this skill that I have is like a result of like the circumstances. It's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's not to like, not to say that either is better or anything, but I, I mean, once again, I have that total opposite experience where like I had a book and would get a sticker Mm -hmm. and I I was such a good rule follower and I was such a good practicer Yeah, and um, improvising was, is so hard for me. (laughs) Um, But I think part of why I like ended up majoring in jazz studies is I had this kind of gut instinct that I needed someone to force me to like work on that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I could, I could tell that it was like missing. No, that's, I mean, that's, that's very cool too, because that was a a significant moment of self-awareness for you yeah. just going like, no, I need this. Like yeah. it's over there. I don't have it yet. Yeah. It's not part of who I am or the way that I look at the yeah. world or music. And yeah. I want, I want to, totally. you know? Yeah. I don't think I could quite articulate it, but I knew that the artists who I really admired had a freedom that I like did not have. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, but that's, you know, we're starting here and like, normally I don't start talking about this stuff until a little bit later, but I, I, You're going to have to do more editing than normal. <laughs> I don't, I, I won't. And I never do any, um, it's totally organic, but I, but I, I, I like to talk to, you know, people who've landed in their adulthood as professional creatives. Um, I think it can be so easy to project a certain type of narrative on us, um, and, you know, like we just can imagine like, you know, baby Jeff Baker being like, a, you know, this great improviser and like, that's maybe true, but also because like, that was like the stuff that was around for you. Yeah. I think, th- I, think I think that's it's a really hopeful outlook. I think that that's more of it. Like, I think that I arrived here because I was encouraged to play. Yeah. That's a big part of it. you mean like play? Play. Emphasis like, on 
play. Exactly. Like, yeah. no, just like go, like go play. Yeah. Just make stuff up. Yeah. Um, I was encouraged to, or not encouraged, but you know, like, um, my parents didn't have a ton of money. They're both public school teachers. Cool. And so, but they were insistent that as much as they could, they wanted us to travel. So even yeah. if it was like to the Oregon coast or, sure. um, like back to the Northeast to see my, um, my great aunt or my godparents or something like that. Like yeah. just this idea of getting me out of what I was mm-hmm. used to and knew so that I was without knowing it, I was being asked to sort of respond real time to something yeah. new. Right. That's huge. Um, that's such a beautiful way to put that. Yeah. And, and so and that's like, what your whole career is now. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. It's like all these factors and then sort of, um, rather than introducing rather than introducing me to the rules or guidelines or anything like that it was more of this um very much like a self-led pursuit everything yeah. that i was doing like if I, any part of the circuit yeah <laughs> if i was drawing if i was playing a video game like i wasn't i wasn't asking for help yeah. it was like oh how do i do this i was like okay and i'm just sitting yeah. there sort of figuring it out you know and yeah. um so it's those kinds of things more than anything else that just gave me permission as I got older, mm. where I feel like some, some artists don't feel like they have that permission. They feel like they're, they need to ask, yeah. the, you know, whoever that person, that totally. mentor is or whatever. Well, from my perspective, like I, I didn't necessarily feel like I needed to ask permission. I think like naturally I was a very like exploratory and kind of wild sort of a child, like mm. not rambunctious, but like a wild imagination. And, yeah. um, my, uh, like the adults in my life specifically said like, stop it, you know, like, interesting, like that, that, uh, that need to ask permission was like, I didn't come with that. <laughs> like, yeah. So I, I do think like, it's, it's so important to like, I mean, this is why like, I get on one in this podcast sometimes about like being creative about how we think about people. Mm. Cause it's so easy to look at like an adult or even a teenager or even a child and think like, well, you're just this, you're just this type. But like those little changes can happen when you're so little. Yeah. Did you, so did you hear don't do that a lot? All the time. Yeah. So that's so interesting. I don't, I mean, I can't like, as I'm thinking about my memories as, as of a child, as my, of my childhood, I don't think I ever heard my parents or my grandparents say, say that to me. Yeah. And it it was like about, like, it's not like I was misbehaving. It was like, just, Hey, Emily, stay in a tighter box. Yeah. You're a lot. You're just like, they, like they, you don't look like how we want our kids to look. So interesting. You're you're not like the right. I was too like dreamy. Hmm. I was too kind of like, you know, so then you imagine like, why is it difficult for someone like me to like, get a jazz studies degree and like yeah. improvise that that's the answer. You know? yeah. So, but I think like in my core, I'm like a really free type of a person, but you know, it's, it's weird. I think it's teachers. And also, you know, just when we're looking at our art community, when we're looking at like the up and coming art community, when we're looking at our peers to be able to just think like, what else are you capable of? Yeah. Um, I'm so curious about it, which is why I'm also so curious about like our, each of our kind of backstories. Sure. Um, Cause I think it, it really, it can paint a very optimistic picture about how flexible we can be. As people. Yeah. 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 
Well, and there's, you know, it, and it is all the factors. I mean, there, there is absolutely an element of, like you mentioned before, of privilege in the sense that, you know, I grew up in a place that I knew was safe. Yeah. Like I could ride my bike to school every single day. Yeah. My parents were public school teachers. And one of the benefits that I received from that is that they went to the school before mm -hmm. the year started yeah. and they met with their friend who was the counselor or the vice right. principal. And they said, we really think that Jeff would thrive in this person's class. Interesting. Yeah. And in elementary school, it was great, but where it really became significant was in middle school because in middle school, there were these like, um, just kind of like, uh, you know, uh, underground landmines, mm. uh, waiting for you all over the place because of the t period of like all the stuff that you deal with from your hormones and socially and everything oh, yeah. else. And then you get some teacher who is isn't really, gonna really, get you. yeah, isn't yeah. going to get you. And so that can, that can put, put young people in a really terrible direction. Like it's just a slight turn of totally. the ship and all of a sudden they're in completely different waters. Yes, and so it terrifies me. Yeah. I think like as an adult, I think about that so often. <laughs> yeah. Like, how can we just like prevent kids from like, just you're right. Like having that one thing that just makes them never create anything. Yeah. I mean, and that's just one, like that's just one branch that I'm thinking about, but yeah, no, it, but it is. It, so it ends up being this convergence of, various factors. Right. Yeah. And, you know, little things like that, that allowed me to sort of navigate through, you know, my, my science teacher also happened to be like someone who painted. Yeah. And that's uh, so beautiful. I mean, just, I'm just, I'm just, your parents advocated for you to like have creatively minded people in your life, even though like it's not maybe something that they were like doing a ton of. No. That's it, awesome. Yeah, it wasn't I at love, all. That's love. Well, it is. And it's a re it was a recognition of, you know, it's like my sister was an actor, uh, was an actor and a dancer. She was like, she got fourth in the country in tap her, wow. when she was a teenager. Awesome. She was incredible, um, uh, you know, dancer. And then she, w she moved to New York and became an act actor and did all this kind of stuff. And so again, like, I look at my parents' situation and they're going, okay, we've never done any of this stuff. Yeah. Like it never even occurred to us to do that, but we see it. We see how much our kids like it. Yeah. We see, again, I, I don't, th I don't really think of it as talent so much as just propensity. It's yeah. like you're drawn to doing this you're thing. You're lit up about the thing. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so they were just, um, determined to provide those kinds of opportunities, That's awesome. you know, wherever they were. And, and, um, you know, for, for me, it was music theater. It was Kiwana's yeah. boys choir. Yeah. Um, and then those group piano lessons, eventually piano lessons. And then, uh, I did a lot of camps. I went to this music camp, um, starting in the fourth grade. Cool. And I liked it so much that it was a, there were two separate weeks of the camp and I just stayed yeah. I just did the whole camp awesome. over again. And by the next year, I was attending camp the first week and then I was a junior counselor the second I love week. That. And a few years after that I was helping run it. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that was a big part of that's that's amazing. Music stuff I'm too. inspired by hearing that story. Um what other like were were there other things that were informing your creativity as a little kid? Like bef maybe before like middle school? Um yeah, I mean, I just, 
Or like what, what was your input? Like what were you listening to? What were you consuming? Yeah. You know, we, we, again, like my parents, they tried really hard to, to take us to stuff. Sure. So, um, saw a lot of musicals. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing a lot of musicals as a young kid, like 42nd street and cats and, yeah. um, a bunch of those when we would, when we'd go on trips, um, they did their best to kind of take us to concerts where it was appropriate. Yeah. Um, and to hear music, all that stuff. And then <clears throat> I was, I think everybody figured out by about the time I was four or five that I was really good. Like I could match pitch. I could yeah. follow melodies. I mean, all that kind of stuff. They could hear it. My sister and I used to go visit my grandfather before he passed away. He was in a care home and we would go from room to room and we would sing Cute. for all yeah. of the old people that were in the, yeah. in the care home. And then eventually obviously for my grandfather. So that was my first kind of thing I remember of. Um, and again, this is another, another really great example of just how fortunate I was in those experiences because my very first opportunities to sing in front of people had nothing to do with performing. Yeah. It was all about giving them something to make them feel better. Yeah. That's amazing. What a, like, what a gorgeous thought. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think about that all the time is like the whole point of that. It had nothing to do with me. Yeah. It had nothing to do with me. These people were lonely. Yeah. They were sick. Some of them had family that visited them all the time. Some of them didn't. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I very often think about that as like, oh, the first, the first times I was asked to sing in front of people, it was all about giving them something. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Do you remember like being, you know, maybe like age 10 or younger? Um, do you remember like having adults give you any certain kind of validation about music that kind of made you start thinking like, this is a thing I'm good at? Like, was that a thing that was happening? Yeah. I, um, I remember pretty specific, I think I was maybe eight or eight or nine. And, uh, there was a, there was a choirs at the church that we went to and there was a kid's choir and then there yeah. was an adult choir. And I went into kids choir one day and I like let myself out. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, nope. Yeah. And my mom was really curious. I was like, what are you, you know, what's, and I was like, I don't want to do that. That's, yeah. that's not fun. Why, why didn't you want to do it? It was just, it was erratic and. Oh, I see. It felt, I mean, even at that point in time, like it just felt sort of pointless. Like yeah. it, it just felt like I it totally was. totally relate to that. Yeah. Like there were, yeah. there were five rooms for the kids to be put in and yeah. they just put me in that one. And I was like, I didn't want any part of that. Yeah. So I used to sneak out of um, Sunday school too. Yeah. My, um, my God, uh, my godfather was the priest at the Episcopal church that I grew up in. Cool. And so, um. So one, and he didn't, he didn't tell my parents, but I was sneaking out of, (laughs) I was sneaking out of Sunday school coming into big church and just like sitting and listening to my godfather, you know, talking everything. Of course you'd prefer that. And, um, and, and so this is the story that he told me is that he came up and asked, he said, you know, Jeff, why are you, why are you sneaking out of, uh, Sunday school? Why do you keep doing that? And I told him, I was like, oh. Moses, 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 reruns, reruns, reruns. Yeah. You like <laughs> needed like, more. Yeah. It was like just too, yeah. too much repetition, too dumbed down or whatever. Oh my so, gosh. so my mom decides to go and the church had just um, hired this graduate student at Boise State University in choral conducting named Ted Totorica. 
to be the church choir director. Cool. And my mom went in and said, I want Jeff to be in the adult church choir. Yeah. And Ted was like, you're crazy. You can't I mean, have I, you a know, child in here. You can't put a, you know. Yeah. And so he, he fought with my mom about this for a couple of years. Eventually I did sing in the adult church choir. Yeah. The really funny thing is that Ted ended up being my high school choir director yeah. and music teacher and one of my closest and most significant wow. mentors. Yeah. Um, and he knew me, you know, all the way yeah. to that point in time. But the funny story that he tells is that, you know, so he, my mom is, <clears throat> my mom is not a stage parent by any stretch of the imagination, but she was advocating. She for is you. an advocate. Yeah, absolutely. And she knew that, that I, you know, I, even though I couldn't even read music at that point in time, you were like serious about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, That's awesome. but the story that he would tell is that like, he finally listened to me sing something. And then he was like, he knew he had to figure something out Yeah. at that point in time. I was nine years old. He knew yeah. he, there, he had to figure something out to, yeah. you know, to do. Yeah. This is so interesting. Like I'm, I, I just, I'm having this thought, like I so relate to that of like going to something as a kid that was meant for kids and just being like, I can't even be in here. Like, I need more organization. Mm -hmm. I want this to have, like, I need a goal. Like yeah. I want this to be towards something. Um, and that's also why, like, I was so like good at being a traditional piano student. Cause it was like, I see the goal, but I also did play, but I'm just thinking like, I bet, I bet we started with such similar stuff. Like these things that you're saying, I'm thinking like, but the side that I, I only got nurtured in the side of the rules, mm -hmm. which I liked, you know, I'm like, it's not nothing. Like yeah. I st it still got me into North Texas. And, you know, absolutely. You know? And, it, and it, <laughs> it creates, um, it creates a wonderful sense of accomplishment and success and confidence. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's not, um, it's, it's only a, it's only a bad thing. I don't even, I wouldn't say a bad thing. It's only a negative thing when, an individual's not allowed to ever address yeah. the other part of, or if it's too results oriented in like a competition kind of a way. Sure, but I'm imagining I'm I'm totally projecting on you. I'm like I'm I'm certain that I'm right about it. Like hmm. it, it you you're serious about it because like you just want the music to be great. Like yeah. you you care about it. It feels like big and important to you. Yeah, and you you want everyone who's making the music to also feel that way. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's, it, it's I, not about like, we need to be the best. It's like, this is supposed to sound this certain way. And like, I want the joy of like it sounding that way. Yeah. No, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, I, I think maybe, I think that may be the thing that was possibly pre-programmed into my DNA and That's my genetic I was just, code early was it's just so funny that you said that. Cause I was just going to ask, like I, I wanted it to, I wasn't going to do it if it wasn't going to be good. Yeah. And I didn't have a concept of like better or best sure. or winning or losing. It was just this sort of thing in my mind of like, well, that doesn't, that's not good. Totally. You know what I mean? I'm and so it, with you. And it could be anything. It could be like, I was sitting here with my like toys or Legos and like building something. Mm -hmm. I remember building really nonsensical stuff. I mean, not functionally yeah. good. You know, I was not destined to be on HGTV, <laughs> but, but it was like something about, there was a point in time where I was like, Oh, that's really good. Yeah. The like, like order of it or yeah, something, like, something, something about it resonated yeah. with me. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and one of the reasons that I, 
quit piano lessons. And this was, this is moving more into like the end of elementary school. Yeah. I'd been doing it for two years and I, you know, I'd been put on the, the regiment, right? Like sure. the sort of like, okay, now you, this linear sequential way of looking at music. Yeah. And I just wasn't, I, I didn't like it. Yeah. And I loved my teacher. Um, but I just didn't like that whole part of it. And in the first recital we ever did, I got up there and I played some really chintzy, you know, like separate, like my right hand plays, then my left hand plays some awful chord. Yeah. And then my right, you know, and I botched it. It was bad. And I sat down. I was very, very frustrated. And then this kid got up. He was five years old. He's in a little tuxedo. Oh, cute. <laughs> and he gets up and he plays like a full on like Bach yeah. thing like while smiling at his mother oh, in the in the VHS camera like hey mom you know what happened to you and i was like <laughs> and so i went up to my teacher right after that and i was like look i want to keep doing piano lessons but i will not do these recitals because i'm not it's not good enough like i don't sound good enough yeah. she's like oh you have to do the recitals you know that's part of the yeah. part of the system and i was like mm-hmm. okay i don't want to do piano lessons anymore yeah Interesting. Wait, so the Bach kid, yeah, you felt like, what did you feel about him? I'm not totally clear. Um, I but think I'm curious. I just think that I felt like whatever I was doing was not was not producing. You wanted to any be producing kinds of something excellent. Results, yeah. Like, like you felt like he was excellent. Yeah, and it wasn't yeah. like I didn't hate the kid at all. Sure. Like I wasn't upset with him. It just or anything. gave you like a. It just made you go like, this is. I don't. That's what I want to feel like. Yeah. And I'm and, not feeling like that. Yeah. And I was like, and, and again, like a reference, keep in mind, like the only other time I'd ever played piano was with 12 other kids at sure. Yamaha keyboards sure. playing the same song at the same time. And when I did that, I had always felt like I was kind of one of the ones that was keeping things together. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. so yeah, yeah, yeah. then there was just a situation I was like, well, this doesn't make any sense because, and at that point in time, it, it didn't register with sure. me that like, well, he probably started a lot, a lot earlier than you did. And his, and this is something that I now understand and has become sort of the centerpiece of the way that I teach and try to communicate music is that what we're really doing is we're triangulating music, all these things around a center goal. We're not, it's not linear sequential at all. Right. And so I will, I will get students to this day and they'll have all of this stuff together you know, in one part of their board sure. that's right towards the center of the bullseye, like yeah. the world class, the thing. And then you go over to this other part of their board and it's like, and they have nothing. no clue. Yes. So in that instance, what I understand now with some perspective, looking back forward is just that he, he was the convergence of factors in his life Yeah. led him to be able to, to, to do all of that stuff really sure. early on. Yeah. I don't know where he is now or what kind of life yeah. and music or art creating he had, but he definitely had a lot yeah. together in that, in those areas. Right. You know? That's why I wanted to ask, like, how did you feel about him? Cause I feel like it could just as easily be like, there's no art here, you know? And I mean, like, yeah. it's, you can't, it, like, let me be clear. I'm not saying that about a five-year-old, but yeah. you know, like from your like it would be nine-year-old awesome perspective, <laughs> it could, it could be, <laughs> I just mean, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. you, I mean, I think you could just as easily be like kind of put off by the perfection of it. Yeah. So that's why I was curious. Cause yeah, as an, as an adult, it's like, which of those things? Yeah. Well, you know, I think I would rather see a child exploring and being a little bit less, Excellent. Yeah. 
Um, but that's just because, you know, I found as a teacher that exp- exploration is harder to teach. And some of that is my own baggage. Mm. You know, that's some of that's my projection where yeah. like, if I see a child that's too perfect, I'm like, you're a little kid. Yeah. <laughs> you should play. Yeah. You should be playing. Cause it's so much harder to learn that when you got peer pressure. That's the thing, you know, uh, Kenny Werner, the great jazz yeah. piano player who wrote Effort- effortless mastery. Yeah. Um, I once uh, did a jazz festival, uh, uh, headlined a jazz festival that he was also on, and, and we had a, this amazing conversation. And he he said, and it, this might be in his book or something before, but he said, you know, there's a reason they call it playing music. Yeah. If they wanted it to be work, they would have called it working music. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Or something like that. But just sort of, and if you think about, too, <clears throat> kids, um, they develop the relationship with art early on. Totally. And there's a lot that goes into that. The one of the things I've really been thinking about a lot the last couple of years is that process of what experiences early on do in terms of like um uh like boys and girls and how there's that self-selection or it's not self-selection actually it's imposed selection sure. that's like oh no 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 like girls don't play drums here's a violin I specifically had that like I wanted to play drums so bad and my parents were like girls don't play drums absolutely and it, but and it happens like I remember in elementary school everybody who wanted to go out for band yeah and that there'd be they all these flutes to and yeah. clarinets and oboes flutes, to the girls flutes and clarinets to all the girls and um none of the girls none of the girls Maybe were French horn yeah, I've never, I, I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever met. Um, you have because Rosanna Eckert is one. Is she? She started on French horn. That's awesome. Yeah. I love French horn. I have to tell her my, I have a handful of French horn jokes. I'll have to tell them. Tell her, her. Yeah. Yeah. She started her major, she started as French horn and then was in like jazz singers and then was like, oh, I'll do this. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. The, um, but so what's interesting What's interesting though is like so the same thing happens with boys when like when I went out for theater. Right. They're like, yeah. oh no, 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 no. Like or or we'll yeah. like we'll come we'll come find you when we're doing something that's more quote unquote masculine. Sure. Or whatever. Like so there's yeah. all these terrible gender baggage terrible on instruments things. and genres. Yeah. It's the worst. Um so you know, when you with like when you think about that and then you think about just some of the other, like what we're talking about, some of the other factors that people deal with about who their mentors or parents and family or friends and how they are reacting to what we're doing. Yes. Like what you've been talking about. It's, it's amazing in some cases that kids are able to kind of make it through all that stuff and continue to play or continue to sing or whatever. Yeah. I was having this memory the other day, my best friend, when I was like in, kindergarten like you know that first little best friend heather jones um my mom and like i've talked i've talked a lot about my mom she was like a narcissist and you know i'm i'm thinking about this memory now and wondering if like heather actually had anything to do with it at all but my mom told me you know emily heather came home from the talent show and told her mom that emily scoresby is a show off and a brag um and i thought about that for like 20 years, you know, like I just recently thought like, Heather probably didn't think I was a show off and a brag. And that's so not like, I also feel like art and music is like this sharing, this giving, like I, I never have like a center of attention. I don't want to be the center of attention. I just want to like 
share things. Yeah. And so like that, I mean, I was probably six when that happened. And uh, like, gosh, I, I was so worried for like, definitely up through college. Like, I don't want anybody to think I'm a show off or a brag. Wow. That's such a stupid thing. Like, and who, I mean, so yeah, I mean, yes. Like thinking about like how your peers are going to respond, what people are going to say. Yeah. It's so fragile. (laughs) It's such a fragile thing. Yeah, it is. And it's, um, I'm really sorry that that happened. First of all, because I, I hate to think that like, yeah, I don't know. I hate to think that there were things that little Emily missed out on because that little voice was kind of keeping her from. I think it's still happening. I'm still, I mean, that's why I was thinking about it recently and just thinking like, I'm still, I still am worried that someone's going to think I'm a show off. Hmm. I'm still thinking about it. Yeah. But thanks. I don't even know. Yeah. I don't even know what the, what's the new generational equivalent to someone being a show off. Cause that's not like a, like that's not something I hear you hear very often. You know what I mean? I mean, no, I think you do. People don't use that word. They just, say like people are entitled or Mm. like attention, you know, like, I mean, I think the younger generation, even like the kids who are like late, like older kids and younger teens now, Mm. I think get such a bad rap for like any, you know, they want attention on Instagram or which, you know, that's their platform. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so the thing is like, I mean, um, basic human needs are, are still basic human needs. They've always been basic human needs, right? right? One of them happens to be attention. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like we want people to know that we're in the room. We right. want people to acknowledge that we're there. <clears throat> it would be great if they appreciated us yeah. or valued what we were saying. I yeah. mean, so these things, it's not like this is new. The difference is that it's moved into this very bizarre. Where it's actually public. Yeah. Instead and, of like, it's your elementary school talent show. Yeah. And, and like, uh, where are you saying I got a penny in my pocket? Yeah. <laughs> Cause so, that was the song that made me a show off and I, brag. Wow. I mean, <laughs> it is over the top. <laughs> that's funny. Um, yeah. So now, but that's now it's just this weird, um, I mean, some of it I get, I guess I, I guess I understand Instagram. I don't understand Snapchat. At all. I, I don't, don't get it. I have one and I also, and TikTok is a new thing that I also, I'm just like, I'm too old for this. Yeah. Well, the, I, I feel that way a lot, but I just, I try to see the functionality of some of these things. <laughs> and I, for as long as I, I just, I, 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 my niece and nephew accidentally knocked my phone over and uh, I went to catch it and it hit the ground and cracked. So I got a new phone and I haven't put, Snapchat back on because I just don't get it. I don't understand what I'm supposed to be doing or what other people are doing or really what the purpose of it is. Yeah. And <laughs> so anyway, funny. I haven't gone back. But I think you're right. Like these, it, it, what's happening right now is just the same thing that's always been happening, except that it's weirdly public and adults are commenting on children's exploration in a way that they didn't use to, or shouldn't, yeah, it, or something. It just used to be private. Yeah. And it used to be, and, and praise and, or constructive criticism was saved for very specific instances. Yeah. And it came from very specific people in your life. Right. Right. Like, uh, teachers or mentors or coaches or whoever pastors yeah. or whatever you want to look at it. And now it's like, no, like this guy who just happens to follow me yeah. online, some stranger has, 
a commentary to give me about this, whatever. Oh my gosh. And it's, it is super strange. Yeah. Um, if you've, if you've heard, if you've heard or seen Ricky Gervais's last standup special, he was talking about people attacking him on Twitter. Yeah. And he's like, and he's trying to explain, he's like, I'm not talking. Like when I post something, I'm not, it's not directed at you. Yeah. And he's like, and he's like, that's like walking to the middle of town and seeing an advertisement for guitar lessons yeah, and going, but I don't want guitar lessons. I know it's so bizarre. (laughs) And then calling the phone number and being like, Hey, I don't want guitar lessons. Yeah, And you're like, you walked into town. What do you want me to do? It's like, it's yeah. just, it's, it's very, yeah. it's very, very, very funny, very worth checking out. But, um, yeah, so it's just, but those things have been, they've always been there. We've yeah. always needed, we've always needed validation. I think we always imagined what it would be like if thousands of people that weren't, that didn't go to school with us or we didn't see every day were like, I like you, or I think yeah. what you did is great. Yeah. Like there's some sort of strength in numbers, even yeah. though it's just a click. Yeah. It, it still feels like something much bigger than it, it so is. It so does. It and, so does. And, the, and vice versa yeah, as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we were talking about validation. We went <laughs> and we got back. Um, so I want to talk now about like, I mean, I feel like we've, we've captured your kind of what you were doing in your childhood. Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk about like the teen years where I assume you start to like really hone your skills. Yeah, I am. Um, so... Basically, I more serious about I stuff. got into I I became a teenager in the uh, early '90s, and so um, grunge music was everywhere. And yeah. all of my friends uh, were listening to Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Stone Temple Pilots cool. and all these different bands. And it was almost at that exact same time that I got two. Uh, I heard two jazz records. One is um, Dizzy Gillespie live at the Village Vanguard, and the other was the Ray Brown Trio live at the LOA, or Summer Wind is the name of the record. And um, I was obsessed with those records. Why? I I don't know, other than I I I like like you'd mentioned earlier. I recognized right away. First of all, that this was being executed at a level like this was music that for whatever reason sounded better to me, like of a higher quality than up with people that I'd just seen, you know, touring or, and and this is no, like, I'm not criticizing. It's not a dig. Yeah. No, it's it's because I didn't know enough to know one way or the other, but it just felt that way to me. And part of it, obviously, especially like the the Dizzy Gillespie record, part of it was just like, yeah, they are, they're kind of doing something faster, but it's still, it still feels right. Like it doesn't feel like they're making mistakes, but yeah. So, and the, and then there was this incredible sense of freedom about what they were doing too. Part of the other thing about what's interesting that I think about a lot, both of those records are live records. Yeah. So what I was also hearing was I was also hearing people respond to the music right. and you don't get that all the time with right. other things. So that was a whole other piece of information that was coming in. It was like, Oh, people like, listen to the way that like the Ray Brown trio, for example, they're just like building and building. And, um, the great Gene Harris who lived here, who I knew and met and 
was able to open for and a, a whole bunch wow. of things in my life. Like he had this ability on piano to just sort of um, like start in second gear and then the next mm -hmm. chorus was third gear. Yeah. And, and Ray Brown is doing it with him and Jeff Hamilton. And so it's like building in this way and you feel this incredible arrival point. And that was my first exposure to what I now know is catharsis, mm. right? Is this like release of energy. Yeah. Um, and as I've gotten older, I believe that those are like the two words, the two pillars of, or two of the three pillars of jazz or yeah. free, freedom and catharsis. Wow. Yeah. And, um, so for me, that resonated tenfold to just sort of the angst and bitterness and the stuff that I was perceiving was coming out of mm -hmm. the music of Nirvana and Stone yeah. Temple Pilots and sure. that kind of stuff. So for whatever reason, that that sort of happened you. in that moment. And then around the same time, my dad took me to a concert at the high school he, he was uh, teaching at here in town. And they had a jazz choir and I heard mm. people sing jazz for the first. I didn't know you could sing it. I wasn't aware yeah. um, at that point in time that there were jazz singers. And so here's like a choir. And you were already singing. Yeah. You were singing yep. in some choirs and yeah, doing oh, absolutely. theater. Yeah. Okay. Singing choirs, um, being, you know, doing like semi-professional music theater stuff. Okay, cool. And, um, but I just, I didn't know that the same kinds of tunes that Dizzy Gillespie played yeah, or that Ray Brown possible threw for singers. that were possible for singers. So I hear this vocal jazz choir. It's like, oh, you can sing this stuff too. Yeah. And so <clears throat> that kind of was the beginning of my exposure to it. And then I was in junior high school and I was this kid who, you know, I was doing um, classical solo competitions. I, I entered one competition and I got up there and my legs started shaking and I'd never had this. I'd never been nervous before, had any kind of wow. anxiety, but I just remember my right leg starting yeah, to just go crazy. Yeah, I had that one time. It's a scary thing. Uh, and it's I an upsetting thing. Yeah, and I couldn't stop it. I didn't know what was going on. Um, I actually think it was my blood sugar. Really? Believe it or not, later in life. But uh, So then I get the score sheet back and I like... I won this award and then, and the, and the judge comment was like, Oh, you have the most beautiful vibrato. And I was like, what is vibrato? Sure, yeah. <laughs> you mean the thing where my leg is spasming and I can't stop it. I'm supposed to do that. You know, that's so funny. It was, uh, it was bizarre, but, uh, even starting it there, like 12, 13, you know, 14, it was like, I was the one kid at the school that was like kind of into jazz and yeah. you know, all that stuff. And when I got to high school, um, I got to Bora High School and they had a really great tradition of, of a jazz choir and yeah. a jazz program, everything like that. But um, there was nobody there with the exception of one of the English teachers, um, Mr. Ray, Rod Ray. This great, great guy. And a this great is teacher. high school. This is okay. into, into high school. Okay. But um, there was nobody to show me anything. Yeah, I was going to ask that before because I had a similar experience. Like I grew up in Mesa, Arizona. Mm. I mean... There's a little bit of jazz there, but it's definitely, I definitely had a lack of resources. Mm -hmm. So yeah, what did you, what did you do? How did you keep learning? Um, I, I still, I still feel to this day that really great teachers, um, they do, in, they do, they do provide information, but beyond that, they provide resources yeah. and opportunity. Yeah. So 
if you are if you're out there right now, you're a teacher and you don't have a jazz program and you want to. Yeah. That's how you do it. Yeah. You get your students good information, you get them resources, ways to find things themselves. Yeah. And then you give them opportunities to to perform, to learn, to whatever it is from yeah. outside sources. And my high school uh, choir director, he definitely knew a ton about music and making ensembles sound incredible. And he had a lot of experience with a jazz choir, but he didn't really know about jazz. That's how, same as he mine. Did, yeah, yeah. You know, and so. Like but, an amazing choir director. Yeah. Curious about jazz. Yeah. Not knowing a ton about well, it. And Mr. Tortorica listened. I mean, he checked out the records and he was, he liked jazz. That's why he had it as part of his program. Right. But what he really knew how to do was make sure that any student who came in, whether they were an instrumentalist playing in his combo or someone like me, he just knew right away. It's like, I need to make sure that this kid has opportunity wow. and information and um, resources. Yeah. And so that's what ended up happening. I mean, he, um, we would go uh, every year. We'd travel to the Lionel Hampton Jazz yeah. Festival. At the I'm University going, of Idaho. I'm doing a workshop there this Very this cool. month. Very cool. Yeah. Um, a lot is a lot has changed uh, for a variety of reasons yeah. up there. Um, the main one is that you know you, when you have a giant like Lionel Hampton, who's the face of your festival, and he's up there. And he's able to call all of his friends and say, I want you to come to this mm. tiny town in, in uh, right. Idaho and play. It had a, tr I mean, tremendous influence. It was the largest student jazz festival in the United States for many, many yeah. years. Um, so we would go up there and, <clears throat> I mean, I remember in the span of one, one day hearing like, again, like Ray Brown, Elvin Jones, wow. Mulgrew Miller, Lou Rawls. Ethel Ennis. Oh my gosh. Um, all in, all in like one, yeah. you know, at one festival. Wow. So it was unbelievable. And yeah, so formative. Yes. And so one of the, uh, one example I'll give about my choir director is that we were going to go up to compete. We went up every year to compete as a choir, but he wanted the, the combo, the squids as they're called. Um, and myself to really get as much out of the festival as possible. Yeah. So he let us, fly up there two days early. Oh my gosh. We stayed at my sister's apartment in Spokane, Washington. She went to Gonzaga. So we stayed in Spokane. Wow. We drove her car over the, it's like 40 minutes yeah. to Moscow every day. And we did the entire festival, every workshop, every masterclass, wow. the solo competitions, That's everything. And um, I know that that was something that other students were jealous and upset about, mm. but I also know that that was one of the most significant opportunities I ever had. Um, and, you know, we didn't waste it at all. I mean, yeah. we were there morning till night, yeah, just soaking all of Consuming it in. Consuming all of it. Can you talk about, like, so bef up until, like, the time that you were, like, applying for colleges? Yeah. What... I don't mean up until, but, like, around that time. So ages, yeah. like, 15 to 18 or yeah. whatever. What, what was going on with your like music identity? Like, how did it feel to you to be like the guy that sings jazz, the guy likes jazz? Like, what were you, what was that? What was going on with you? Um, it was pretty, it was pretty easy for me to carve out an existence. Um, I, I was, 
So I was class president two of the three years in high school. Um, cool. I was the public address announcer for all the women's and men's basketball games. Awesome. Um, I did a lot of different things. I used to... Um, uh, so you as, didn't have to own that th- that identity. Well, I just think that I... I just think that I was sort of a a person that had a lot of interest. You had your circuit. Yeah, and that's, right? yeah, that's it. That's it's true. I did. I had my circuit, and I I definitely had a, a a close group of friends who are still my friends to this day, who were music my music friends. Okay, but I but I did also have like sports friends. Okay, I, like I played varsity tennis for three years and was captain of the tennis team. And so, what so, did the music stuff mean to your identity? Like what? How much was it taking up? Um, it took up it took up a lot of residency, but again, and this is still true to this day, mostly it's because like I took zero hour every year. Yeah. I took summer school two summers. I took night school. Like Same. so also I could be in well, at one point in time, four choirs. Oh my gosh. Ca- uh, class president, captain of the varsity tennis yeah. team public address announcer for the basketball games. Yeah. Like, um, then I was working at camps or going to camps all summer. Oh my gosh. So, and like, I just didn't know any, like I just was filling my time with stuff that I like to do. Was there any, I'm I'm guessing the answer is no, but I want to ask, was there any sense of like, I need to do all of this? Like, was your, was your self worth wrapped up in it in any way? Or what is just what you loved? No, I just think I, I just, I just, yeah, I, I, um, want to ask. I, I think that like like anything, you gravitate towards the places where you have success, right? And the yeah. older you get, the more likely you are to go towards the things that you're going to be successful yeah. at because not being successful feels worse the older you get. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's like yeah. it's like you're climbing this thing, and when you fall, when you're young and you fall, yeah, it sucks. But yeah. it's like it was two steps. Sometimes when you get up a little I... further. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, no, I, I'm thinking but when you get up a little further, like that fall can be, be harder. That's so, true. so that was part of it. The other part of it is that I think we gravitate towards our people. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. <clears throat> I definitely had, um, I definitely had people that I connected with yeah. pretty richly, um, especially through music, but also like on the tennis, like my doubles partner in mm. tennis, like yeah. we were, we were thick as thieves. We were hilarious and obnoxious yeah, and yeah. Um, as teenage friends should be. Yeah. And, and, yeah. um, um, you know, so, so that was, that was always like a, a good place to be and everything like that. And I never, so I wasn't always that again, I wasn't really concerned about, um, it wasn't like an achievement thing. Sure. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I remember, I remember sitting down to fill out a college application and, like all the things they were asking for. And I was like, Oh yeah, I've done some really cool stuff. Yeah. And like other kids are thinking about like, like what I am I going to put on I my... need to do this and I sure. need this. And I was like, Oh yeah. And Oh, and I did this and yeah. you know, and I'm just sort of going through how fun that was yeah. to, to do a, B or C. Um, you said that you, um, you were gravitating towards stuff that you were good at. Um, did you ever have that kind of feeling that I know a lot of teenagers have of like, I hope I'm good enough for this or like, I hope I'll be accepted here. Or did you kind of, you just like were sparkly everywhere the, you the, went? No, the only place that, um, the only place that I ever felt those types of things were in relationships mm. and in trying to navigate 
uh, being a girls, teenager. Yeah, yeah sure. girls and dating and yeah. and dances and yeah. that kind of stuff. I mean, that was the place where all of that crept into my like. Yeah. I don't know if I'm. I don't know if I know what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, and I don't. Sure. I'm not sure if you ever really know, but um, but that was the place for that. The other stuff, I, I kind of did. I kind of did have a little bit of a. Um, I, a little bit of a blessed existence, I guess yeah. you could put like, it just kind of, a lot of that stuff came pretty naturally yeah. to me and, and easily yeah. to me. And I, um, you know, and I think that the other thing that I was really lucky was like, I do think people liked being around me. And so I was able to sort of go yeah. from place to place or thing to thing or be a part of whatever. You felt kind of welcome. Yeah. That's yeah. great. And, and I, I don't, I never really, there weren't really ever moments of like, oh, you know, like the Forrest Gump on the bus, you can't sit here kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, um, I feel like my entire <laughs> first 18 years of my life were like just that. Mm. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, it's, you know, it's so funny. I've been doing, I've now conducted like about 50 interviews. Hmm. Actually, it's probably more like 55 now. And, uh, about half of the artists that I talk to, when I talk to them about their young years, they tell me, like, my parents were so supportive. I have these great teachers. Um, you know, I was so creative because I was so supportive, supported. And then the other half are like, I was so lonely and I was so sad. And the creativity was like the way that I handled it. Yeah. And I, I love collecting both types of stories because you know, I, I say, I'm a broken record about this. I say it all the time, but like, I think it's easy to assign a narrative to grown up artists. And, and that narrative can be either way. It could be like, you were always kind of a genius. You were this artist. You came this way. You've always been this way. Um, or like, you know, yeah, you've got this mysterious, like maybe depending on the genre, mm. we can like overlay a storyline on people. And there just isn't one. You know, everybody's stories are so different. Yeah, no, you're you're ex you're exactly right. If there were, if there was a very clear sort of do this, do this, do this, do this, like Berkeley would have a degree in it, and everyone would be there studying it, right? Totally. And they'd be like, "Oh no, all you have to do is," and then you do it, and then you'll have your life and career in music. And yeah, um, wh what is interesting about what you just said is that I do think that everyone has to deal at some point with some of those, well, ad, basically adversity. Yeah. And uh, it comes in the form of rejection. It comes in the form of loss. Um, it comes in the form of sort of like having expectations and then having, not only not, not having those expectations met, but sort of having that thing disappear. Yeah. You know, um, which like it's not what you thought it was. Or, yeah. yeah, and and it's not going to be, by the way. Yeah, you know, um, so, so, I definitely consider myself very fortunate that some of those things didn't happen to me until I was about seventeen. Sure. Um, yeah, because it did allow me to to like like we've been talking about it did allow me to maintain my circuit. It did allow me to do yeah. all these things and. And for the most part, like feel really good about yeah. myself and all those sorts of, all that stuff. The flip side of it is that when you go to start creating and writing and doing some of the other things in music that 
when you're studying jazz, they, they, a lot of times they come after the fact, yeah, right? Was, like you spend a lot of time preparing. You're doing this interview for me. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was just going to ask, like, when did you start writing and how was that? So, yeah. Well, yeah. but, but so what I was going to say is like, um, it, it took me a long time because, uh, because I didn't have some of those things to draw from. Like, yeah. And it wasn't until that well was nice and full and ready to kind of go. And, and by the way that I was also able to, to reflect on it without losing side of myself and getting a little too, um, yeah. I mean, you can, well, you know, I, it's not the first time I've had this thought, but I'm maybe kind of having it in a different way. You know, I had a lot of that adversity when I, from when I was really little, mm-hmm. um, I just, you know, the, the way that narcissists handle things is they pick a scapegoat and I was that person for my mom. So, mm. but from before I, I uh, sincerely from before I have memories, I was bugging everybody, you know, like that's, that's like, I just was like bothering everyone. Um, that's, that's the story. That's how I remember my life. Um, and I, this, when you said before, like it was in my DNA, what, what were you saying it about a wanting like structure and wanting things to be excellent? I think one thing that's in my like DNA that I didn't earn, it's just like a thing that I have. I'm extremely like, I, I'm, I have a stubborn determination. Mm-hmm. And I think like the fact that I was not getting any validation, but I was just like doing stuff like that's yeah. just, it's just my nature. Um, I think it primed me to not need to be in places where I felt like I was going to be good at stuff. Mm. Um, which is why I was like, I know I'm going to be bad at improv going to North Texas. Yeah. You know, like, cause I, I had spent so many years just like in places where I didn't feel super welcome and where I didn't feel like I was going to definitely do a good job. Yeah. Um, that was just something that was like a given. I didn't even think about it. That's, I mean, that, that kind of resilience and that ability to sort of be like, I don't, I don't care what the obstacle is. Cause the obstacle is not the point. Like you were talking about yeah. at the very beginning, it's like, no, no, no. What I'm headed towards is way over there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm yes. going to have to deal. I, I have to deal with, I have to do what I have to do right now yeah. to get through this stuff. But, but having that sort of, um, ability to look beyond it yeah. helps you get through it. Right. To- totally. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I mean the same, like it's the total opposite thing that like put you in the same kind of career path that I'm in. You know, yeah. It's just like, but we're both here. Yeah. So it's, ugh, I love it so much. It's so awesome. So, um, so you didn't start writing really until college. Is that right? Yeah. I, um, the first song I ever wrote was about my grandmother passing away. And yeah. again, this is the first, it was the first real kind of sign of trouble. Ouch, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh Oh, um, the, one of the things, one of the ways that I, I describe it is that I have always had, um, the type of not, not, not just family, but like our family friends and sort yeah, of the village that, community. that the community and that surrounded me. Um, there was almost always somebody there to help people get through whatever it was. Mm. And, when my grandmother on my mom's side passed away, um, she, she passed away. So we, we had gone, I was a junior in high school. We had gone to the Sun Valley, uh, swing and Dixie cool. jazz festival to perform. My mom had chaperoned the trip. And, uh, so we'd gone up perform. We got back Sunday evening. 
and came in. <clears throat> I was on this very couch. It wasn't the same couch, but it was in the same a, spot, a, same spot, yeah. and just was, had crashed. Yeah, I was so tired. And my mom had gone uh, back to lay down a little bit. And my dad had gone over to my grandmother's house, which incidentally, my grandmother lives less than a minute away or lived less than a minute away from here. Check on her and check on the, um, the, um, she had in-home care person. And um, I just remember he came walking through the door and he was just in tears and she had passed away right there kind of it, out of nowhere you know in his arms just oh, oh my gosh down the street just as we'd gotten back we hadn't even had wow. a chance to go see her and everything like that so um it was the first thing she obviously my mother was was really destroyed but my father had a very very close relationship with my grandmother my, his mother-in-law his, yeah. she had um put him through graduate school wow and um supported him in ways, I mean, his parents, my other grandparents are incredible too, but it was a different sort of thing that she'd given him and different kind of confidence that she'd instilled in him. And yeah. so wow. both of my parents, the the two people that I normally would have gone to yeah. to sort of just help me get through it. Yeah, they were kind of devastated. They were devastated. Yeah. They needed their own, you know, help to, yeah. to work through that stuff. And that's, was the only time in my life that I've ever experienced that, where it was just everybody that was yeah. devastated. And um, that was a, a very big um, period of time in my life where I really kind of came to terms with spirituality and, mm-hmm. and what I would begin to form about how I felt about that. And um, But my fir- the first song I wrote was in response to all of that stuff and and trying to, you know, um, figure out how I, how I felt about it. And, um, what's very interesting is that I still didn't know that much about harmony or, or I shouldn't say, how can I, how can I put this? Like Like theory? Well, theory as it pertains to composition and and function and all that kind of stuff. But when you listen to the song, it's like, it's actually kind of, incredible because it's the music sounds the way the lyrics yeah sound and the song yeah. form like everything sort of really fits and makes sense for that time and place wow. um and then it wasn't and it wasn't for a couple years after that like into college where i wrote a couple other songs and it was after um I think I met the first like kind of first love of my life, yeah. or whatever. And again, like really strong emotions and a lot of back and forth and will they, won't they? And yeah. so, you know, it was tugging at a lot of stuff. And <clears throat> again, I needed, I needed it, right? Like yeah. I needed to release these things. Right. And that was the first time, those were the first instances where I was using music as that vehicle yeah. as a way to. Yeah. You used the phrase a minute ago, I think like, I was trying to figure out how I felt about it, which is so like, you know, I think a lot of people think you like with songwriting, maybe in particular and maybe other kinds of art too, but like that you have a fully baked feeling and then put it down. And I think so often it's not like that. It's like the writing is like trying to help you process. Yeah. 
Um, and maybe by the time you finish it, you feel a different way. You know? Yeah. Like, no, that's, it's, that's it's a, absolutely it's the case. movement. Yeah. That's absolutely the case. And until that point in time, I had only ever needed to play and, and sing music and improvise. Yeah. That wasn't, that had been enough for me yeah. to, Interesting. I, yeah. I, I, I think of it as this sort of ongoing cycle, right. Of like, we're inputting emotion, experience, all these sorts of things. Totally. We're processing here and then we have to expel it. We have to get rid of it. Totally. And one of my theories is that some of the great artists who didn't live very long couldn't ever get mm-hmm. the ratio mm-hmm. in the right place. Like John Coltrane. Yeah. Like I like, I like to think, or part of me thinks that he was feeling so deeply on so many levels yeah. and he was taking in so much stuff. He couldn't play enough notes to get it back mm-hmm. out again. Yeah. It didn't matter. You could he also could... apply that to like Virginia Woolf, you yeah, know, like, yeah, absolutely. Sylvia Plath. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so, so yeah, so they're just, they're, they, they're feeling so deeply Yeah, and they're inputting so much that it didn't, it, they could write or play 24 seven and never yeah. get rid of it. And so that, I think that's maybe one of the reasons he self-medicated. Yeah. It's just so he could slow that, slow that thing down for just a minute. Yeah. Right. Slow that loop down for totally. just a minute. So I think it's a, it's a very plausible theory. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just true. <laughs> like, yeah. Whether it's true for everybody, like certainly I think a lot of artists kind of get stuck in that exact way. I, 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 yeah, I absolutely see that. And, and they now, or at least I shouldn't say now, but like the people, the people that I know, cause I didn't, I didn't know John Coltrane or I didn't yeah. know like some of my favorite authors. I'd never met them, but some of the artists I know they're stuck. They get stuck by having to deal with all of these other stupid things. Administrative. That, yeah. That, yeah. that are like coming in. So, so their input is even more overloaded because it's not just important life altering emotional spiritual questions. It's like curriculum meeting Wednesday at four. That's going to take two hours of your time, whether you like it or not. And you have to, and then it's this other thing over here that you have to invest time and energy in. And you're like, we only have so much bandwidth, right? Yeah. So, but that, that's probably why there's sabbaticals. That's probably why there's yeah, you people can't who keep burn being out. Creative, yeah, totally. Yeah. Can you tell me the story of how you decided what to major in, like, and where to go to college? Yeah, I, I feel um, like it's important. Yeah. So uh, it goes back to the Lionel Hampton uh, thing. So I was at the time the youngest ever winner of the Lionel Hampton Chevron solo competition. Cool. It was about I want to say five or six thousand kids competing. They picked one instrumentalist and one vocalist. Cool. Um, if you won the competition during the day, you got to sing that night on the huge main stage concert with the Lionel Hampton Trio. Awesome. The year that I was there, the Lionel Hampton Trio was Mulgrew Miller on piano, Brian Bromberg on bass, and Elvin Jones on the drums. Oh my gosh. So That's crazy. So uh, again, like I didn't know anything about it, right? In yeah. the fall, Mr. Todorica had come to... Uh, four of us and said, um, if you would like to, I think you should enter this solo competition. You need to get to, uh, you know, you have 15 minutes, whatever it was. And so, um, so I went and found a, a, a vocal jazz teacher, someone who could sure. teach voice lessons and yeah. jazz at the same time. Uh, she was actually great. I drove 
an hour to um, uh, a school in um, Caldwell, Idaho, uh, once a week for these lessons and all this kind of stuff and uh, had the rhythm section and was able to play in with them. So anyway, th this experience was uh, unbelievable. I got to go backstage where all the dressing rooms and trailers were and have dinner with all these famous jazz musicians and yeah. they wow. all wanted to take their picture with me. I mean, it was very cool. Aww. But the reason that I tell this story is because I remember everything about that experience. I sang one song. I sang, I'm beginning to see the light. I completely botched the bridge during my mm -hmm. scat solo. Mm -hmm. Just uh, It's a really hard bridge. Just destroy. I mean. In your defense. I'm surprised the song. extremely difficult. I'm surprised the song still is alive. <laughs> In the you idiom, kill it. because I killed, because I killed it so so badly. But oh no. but I remember standing on stage and I remember the microphone that I was holding. It was an AKG microphone D, I think it was a D nine hundred. It was a diamond shaped microphone. Oh my gosh! I remember the um, monitors that were on the floor. I remember turning and seeing Elvin Jones just grinning from ear to ear because oh. we'd had cheesecake backstage before yeah. going on, right? And he just. He just really liked me. I I was this this like chubby white kid from Boise, like Idaho, and he just, just of course you remember you that. Know, and he so he's just like grinning from ear to ear and smiling at me, and like Mulgrew's kind of like got this like gruff but smile on his face, and um, so that this sense memory of that experience, there's not there's been very little things like it. I've got maybe two or three more in my life that are yeah. just that vivid, where everything about it like. I can recall all of it right now. Yeah. Um, I might even be able, if I really kind of like got into a a deep level of meditation, I might be able to sing you like their solos. Oh, I was going to say, like, can you remember your bad solo? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I think I might, I think I could get to that state of, of consciousness if I really tried. Wow. But so like after that, like it was just, this is what I want to do. Of course. Yeah. You know, before that it was a variety of things. I was really interested in political science. Yeah. I was really good. Um, I'd won multiple sort of speech debate type yeah. competitions. I was really interested in that. Yeah. Um, all this kinds of stuff. Uh, I was even interested in maybe becoming a priest. I mean, there yeah. was just a lot of things, but after that experience, it was so just, it just climbed climbed inside of me and took yeah. up residency and that was it. Was so, any, sorry, go ahead. Oh no. But so then became this sort of mission of like, okay, well, how do I do it? And where do you go? Yeah. Where, did, is, where did you go? I should know, but I don't know. My original plan um, was to audition and go sing at Mount Hood with Dave Bardoon. Okay. And um, something about that experience didn't satisfy all of my interests. Yeah. And so I remember it was, um, it was like, uh, early January, really early January, right after we'd come back from school and, um, walked into the choir room at, at my high school and there was this college choir and they were there on a re recruiting cool. thing. So the chamber choir performed and it was like stunning. And then this jazz choir got up. Yeah. One on a mic, 13 singers. Wow. And um, in the middle of the jazz choir was this wonderful, um, wonderful vocalist with um, red hair who I knew from Frank DeMiro Jazz Camp named Georgina Philipson. She's mm. Georgina Larcher now. Cool. And um, no, she's Georgina Philipson now. She was Georgina Larcher then. Um, and Georgina 
had been a counselor at Frank DeMiro jazz camp and had been, she was like it. Yeah. Like she was like the, she was the hot thing. She, she had been since she was a teenager yeah. and she just got, had gotten better and better. She could improvise. She had this incredible distinct, but original sound. I mean, wow. and she lights up a room. Um, one of my friends once described talking to her or just, being around her is like trying to take a drink from a fire truck. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, and so afterwards I, I went up and she was like, Jeff, you know, she gave me a big hug and, and I was like, I didn't know that you went to school here and all this kind of stuff. And, and so I began to look at Willamette university and, um, and, uh, everything fell into place in a pretty incredible way. I, um, I had good grades, but I didn't have Willamette good grades. Mm. Um, so it was lucky that, you know, there's only a handful of vocal jazz ensembles in the country and they're looking for accomplished soluists. And, um, fortunately, fortunately for me, I do feel like I could improvise at a level that was quite a bit beyond, of course, uh, yeah, I'm not most high school students, um, even though my other skills, my musicianship skills were not up to par. Sure. I didn't have any business, but I did get a a really good scholarship to go there. Um, and then at the same time I was looking, um, I got offered really, really big scholarships. I got offered a full ride to go to Berkeley and I got offered a full ride to go to the DePaul conservatory of music in Chicago. Cool. Um, and so we, we did go back to Chicago and, um, I also looked at Notre Dame cause for some reason, like growing up, I just imagined Notre Dame was where you were supposed to go to college. Probably cause you watched Rudy. Yeah, it was, it was Rudy. It was, um, <laughs> it was my dad and I would watch the games on Saturdays and like, yeah. they'd always show the quad and they'd show these beautiful yeah. old buildings and they'd show the crew team on the very romantic pond. about it. Oh, it's just, yeah. and I remember going there and I was like, why anyone would do anything else is beyond yeah. me. And then I go, you know, then, it, then I go to talk to the music department and they're like, well, we don't have vocal jazz here, but you can always gig in South Bend. And I was like, yeah. well, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining the um, scene in the blues brothers with like the, they're in the bar playing and they have to play rawhide and there's yeah. a chicken wire in front of the <laughs> stage and cause of the beer bottles. So anyway, but, but I went back and I like checked out Chicago and it stressed me out. Yeah. DePaul is multiple campuses spread out around town. Yeah. And most of the, like if you're a music major, most of your time is spent on the arts sort of campus. And, but you still had to like navigate the L train to get to a place. And I I had me too. the person who recruited me was like, me now. Well, that's the thing. Like (laughs) I was coming, you know, I'm coming from Boise. I'm coming from a little town in, in Idaho. And when you have the, person recruiting you be like, Oh, it's not that big a deal. You just want to make sure you don't have any classes in this part of town after five 30. Yeah. And I was like, what? Why? why? <laughs> yeah. That's exactly. It was like, why, why is part of Chicago closed to me after five yeah. 30, you know? And it was just the realities of that were way too much for yeah. me. So, um, so I ended up, uh, applying to, to Willamette and, um, getting a nice, little scholarship to sing, getting absolutely no money. I think they charged me extra for my GPA. Um, <laughs> I, I liked when the, I still remember this, this is really funny too. The first day of orientation, my freshman year in college, 
They have the entire freshman class in the auditorium and they're announcing all of the accomplishments of the class collectively. It's like 200 class presidents, 100 valedictorian, all this kind of stuff. And then they announced the cumulative GPA. And I swear to God, my GPA single-handedly brought down (laughs) the cumulative (laughs) freshman GPA of the Willamette University class of whatever it was by a whole like half a point. Oh my I gosh. know that it would have been a 4.0 <laughs> had it not been for my, you know, and I, <clears throat> I didn't have, I, like, I had good grades. I had, yeah. you know, a, a lot of other places that would have been just yeah. fine, but I still, I still just, you know, I just turned to my dad and I was like, sorry. Oops. <laughs> that is <laughs> so gotta, funny. We got a, we got a good laugh out of that. Um, but so yeah, funny. so, and I was really, uh, you know, again, really lucky. Like, um, Willamette has a really great tradition of, um, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, an incredible vocal jazz program, um, multiple downbeat awards. Wow. Yeah. And, um, I got a chance, we did a tour to Hawaii. We did a tour, we performed at a uh, national, um, uh, conferences and, uh, you know, all this different types of stuff. And so again, like my college choral directing mentor and, and, um, Dr. Wallace Long, same kind of thing. I mean, just he was so good about always making sure that we had information, resources, yeah. and opportunity. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, okay. I really want to be able to dig into like what's going on with you now. So as, as, as hard as this is going to be, can you take me through like that whole decade and a half, like, yeah. eight, like 18 to like, you know, 30 like yeah. in like 10 minutes. We'll do cliff. We'll do the cliff okay. notes. Well, it's not, they're spark notes now. Yeah. They were cliff notes. That's when right. I was, That's uh, right. When I was a kid. Um, so I uh, went to Willamette, unbelievable experience there. Um, uh, I got a, uh, I majored in music education with minors in conducting vocal performance and composition. Cool. Um, and then, uh, I had saved up, uh, enough money to go to graduate school. And that was what, what I thought I was going to do. Um, and then I just decided that I wanted to make a record. Yeah. Uh, no real clear path or understanding of how to do that. Relatable. Um, and uh, so I came back and I just started trying to find people, uh, trying to get information, trying to see what was going on. And um, at that point in time, uh, Origin Records out of Seattle was a couple years old, but they had just released a record of a wonderful um, saxophonist from here in uh, Idaho named Brent Jensen. He did a Call cool. Desmond tribute called Sound of a Dry Martini. Awesome. Uh, beautiful record. And he had connected with Origin Records. And mm. Origin had started just as a label for Seattle musicians to have a chance to, you know, release yeah. their music in a meaningful way. But um, they had, within months, started to expand outward to some Portland musicians mm. and... Uh, even some folks in Chicago and things like that. So the first call I made uh, to John Bishop, who was one of the found John John Bishop and Matt Jorgensen are the founders of Origin Records. And the first call I'd made to John was to ask him to play drums on my record. Yeah. And uh, he didn't know me from anything. All he knew yeah. was that he'd just put Brent's record out. And yeah. so he kind of, he kind of, hemmed and hawed and was like, Oh, you know, I don't know. Some weirdo from Boise. Exactly. Um, but, uh, at the same, at the same time, what I was asking him about was, uh, studios and you know, that kind of stuff. And he gave me 
the name of a, a studio in Seattle and an engineer named Reed Ruddy. And Reed was the um, engineer and partner at Studio X in Seattle, which is the which was the Seattle recording studio. Uh, it was started by the Hart sisters, the awesome. band Hart, yeah. Yeah. and then eventually um, bought by Charlie Nordstrom of Nordstrom. Oh, geez. And um, and he and Reed had created this incredible studio where I mean everybody from Dave Matthews Band, Pearl Jam, um, Chance the Rapper. Uh, Macklemore, the Halo video games. I mean, wow. all these. Th- this is this is one yeah. of the West Coast studios. So, um, I call up Reed, and it was the same thing. He didn't know me from from Adam, and uh, uh, and the band, the Deftones, had Studio X blocked out for six months. Holy cow! So there was not. It was you no were like nights, weekends, no possibility mornings. that I was going to get into <laughs> X, but. I was very persistent. I called Reed multiple times and finally convinced him to engineer the record at a studio in Vancouver, Washington. Cool. Um, so in the meantime, I'm working with some of the uh, really great jazz musicians, including Brent and um, uh, some other musicians here in Boise, uh, piano player Chuck Smith and um, a really great bass player, Jeff Rue, who lived in uh, Sun Valley for a number of years in Boise, and Rob Walker is a trumpet player. So I put together this band and this project. I'm going to do a Chet Baker tribute cool. record. And uh, you're Jeff Baker. That's right. And so the record is called Baker Sings Chet. <laughs> Love it. So a little play <laughs> off of his Chet Baker Sings. So, yeah. Um, and uh, so we do this record, and um, it was good enough that John was interested in in bringing me on board. And so I signed with origin and How old were um, you? I was 22. Ah, that's so great. Yeah. 22. <laughs> that's when crazy. I, yeah. 2000 and 2003. I can't even imagine that kind of like feedback. Yeah. Well, so at, at so, that age, so it was an interesting thing because that record cost me three times as much as it should have. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of, really negative experiences oh, that happened during yeah. that session that are things that have helped me immensely later in my career. Mm. Um, one of the musicians that I hired um, got physically confrontational with me and forced me to pay him twice what I'd, we'd agreed on. What? Um, one of the other musicians and that I was- meanwhile, you're like a, a baby? Yeah. A child? <laughs> one of the other musicians that I was working with was skipping lunch- going in and having the engineers do additional pro tools edits to what we were doing. And so, uh, ended up, there were at least 20 to 24 additional hours of studio oh, time that yeah. I was not anticipating on paying oh, for so terrible. How dare they? Um, so some things like that. Yeah. Uh, and then in addition to that, you know, this was my first session. So I was like travel agent. I was like, uh, producer. I mean, I was yeah. having to do everything. Yeah. Um, and we got to the point where I was supposed to do vocals and I was totally fried. I was sick. I sounded bad. I didn't want to be there. I mean, it was, yeah. so, um, so we have all the instrumental tracks. We've got these really great arrangements and, um, uh, but no vocals. So by this time, Reed and I had started to become friends and he invited me to come and there was another s- studio near where he lived in Seattle. And he said, we'll just go down there and do just the vocals. Cool. So I went, he in- invited me to stay at his house. And um, that's how I got one of my closest friends. The, the Ruddy family are 
uh, among my very best friends wow. now. Um, and, uh, I've stayed with them easily half a hundred times, you know, um, doing music stuff. So we did that, put that record out and some really great things happened. The, that record went, um, number one in jazz radio stations in places like Boston, Chicago, St. Louis, wow. um, Portland, uh, Atlanta. Um, it was played, awesome. it was the, um, uh, music played in every Ralph Lauren store in the oh country gosh. for the month of October. That I mean, just have felt amazing. weird things. Yeah. And it charted, uh, got all the way up to like 20, somewhere in the mid twenties. Um, and it charted ahead of Wynton Marsalis's record, which was really, really fun. Yeah. By the way, that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Listeners, that doesn't I mean, mean I'm anything. I'm sure it meant something to you as a 22 year old. All, all it meant was that, um, I was on the right track. I was doing sure. the right thing. Yeah. And, um, and because of that relationship with John Bishop and Matt Jorgensen at origin, and because of my relationship with Reed and a couple of the musicians from that first record, I started to understand the importance of really, really figuring out who it is that you're going to work with and mm -hmm. collaborate mm -hmm. with and how that can either be a very supportive situation mm -hmm. or it can be a very detrimental situation. Yeah. Um, that record was successful enough from a sales standpoint and a gigging standpoint that I was able to do another one two years later. Wow. Um, and then that record uh, paid for uh, itself again yeah. and, and refilled the coffers. And I was able to do um, uh, um, another record. Um, but at about that time, uh, I was approached to do, I was living here in, in Boise. I was approached to do a fundraising concert for a, private school that was opening a performing arts school cool. that was going to open. And, um, that was with, um, this incredible pianist, Justin Nielsen. Have you ever played with Justin? You should, I've, if you haven't, I haven't played with him, but I, I, I think I'm familiar yeah. with him. Yeah. He teaches at BYUI and, um, Oh, and has been up, wait, up and he, back. Is he Ryan's brother? Yeah, it's Ryan's yeah, okay, brother. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm like, why do I know that name? That yeah. by the way is fantastic because a lot of people would call Ryan Justin's brother. Yeah. So I'm very happy that this gets to go the other <laughs> yeah. way for once. Yeah. Um, anyway, so Justin, it was Justin and his family that were starting this school. So uh, I agreed to do this concert. We were in rehearsals and Justin says, I'd really like to announce uh, at the concert tomorrow night that you're going to teach at the school next year. And I was yeah. like, what? Excuse me? Yeah. And uh, at that point in time, I had a really good existence. Like uh, I was running... Um, sound and playing music at, uh, at this, uh, big church in town. So part-time and the rest of the time I was touring, gigging, um, wow. selling decent number of records. And I was like, yeah, but I'm not. And he's like, look, doesn't matter if you're a guest artist, it shows up once a semester or does a master class or whatever, it would be really good for recruiting and yeah. this stuff. So I thought about it. It's like, there's no way, there's not a snowball's chance in hell this thing's going to get off the ground. So I told them, I was like, you can say whatever you want. Yeah. They did, and they actually got a pretty decent number of students that wanted to come and work with me. Wow. And for the next several months, as we were headed through summer into fall, Justin would just call me periodically to talk to me, and he would say things like, you know, you get to write your own curriculum, and you don't have to put up with the kind of administration and people blocking your ideas and yeah. things and, mm. you know, real supportive. And then he called me one day and this was like early June. And he said these incredible magic words to me. He said, imagine if when you had been coming up in high school, you would have had access to you. Yeah. And I got off the phone. I broke down. 
I bawled. And um, so I told him, I was like, I'm all in. So yeah. then I went to teach at Arts West, eventually became, um, I was the director of vocal music and then eventually became the graduate advisor, meaning I prepared students for their portfolios and auditions and placement in colleges and stuff. Cool. And then my last two years, I was the executive director. So I ran the whole thing while also teaching, while yeah. also maintaining a private oh studio. Yeah. The One of the parents at the school opened a jazz club 100 yards from the school. Awesome. I was a small partner in that. So I was there three nights a week. Wow. Uh, all of that. So busy. <clears throat> all of that led to um, me being hospitalized three times my last year wow. at, at the school. Yeah. And finally, the last time, my, uh, my doctor... Uh, called my parents and asked them to bring me for uh, for all of us to have an appointment. And she said, I'm taking you out of the game. Um, you're killing yourself. You're just doing it really slowly. Oh my gosh. And um, so it was really eye-opening for me. And uh, You were just like not sleeping and just wor working too much. Yeah, it was, I was working 75 hours a week oh easily. And, um, and not only that, but, you know, it was, it was, it was on me to make up the difference and the, you know, we had about a, I don't know, three, $400,000 annual deficit because mm -hmm. of the nature of the school and the business model. We were just constantly trying to dig ourselves out of this hole. Mm -hmm. So um, I stepped away from the teaching and executive director duties. Uh, a wonderful friend, Linda Schmidt, who's a, a great teacher and educator and artist here in Boise, she took over. And then um, I was working still in the background to try to come up with a plan to let for the school to continue. Uh, but eventually, uh, I decided to step away. And, uh, at that point in time, I didn't quite know what to do, but, um, Daryl Grant, who runs the program at Portland State University and who is on origin and who had been one of my very favorite musicians, he had come to the school, he'd done workshops, he'd played at the blue door. And, uh, so I called Daryl and I said, what if I lived in Portland? Yeah. And he kind of moved heaven and earth to get me, a in the door there, uh, wow. uh, which started as a very small teaching position, eventually moved into um, 24 majors, jazz vocal majors and a thriving oh program. And yeah. um, uh, we got that gr group into um, Monterey Next Generation finals wow. and uh, just a lot of really cool stuff. And um, But uh, it's a state, state university and they needed to do a search uh, for the position after I'd been full-time for a year and a half. And, um, through that search process, some negative some things. things happened, yeah. uh, that, you know, at this point in time are not really, they're neither here nor there. Yeah. Um, but suffice it to say, but I was, um, I was replaced by a very, very capable, um, uh, teacher, uh, who had their, uh, doctorate or was pursuing their doctorate, which mm -hmm. I don't have. Yeah. And, um, and the university wanted to go in a different direction sure. in, in that kind How of way. How old were you when that was happening? This was uh, two, two and a half years ago. Okay. So, pr yeah, pretty recent. Um, the, the hardest part about all of that was that my last year in Portland was also the year that I was putting um, together my first uh, phrases, my phrases yeah, project. I was going to say that must have been like right at the same time yeah. that we met. And um, so... What what it was difficult was that the process was originally supposed to be uh, Skype interviews only that were going to take place early spring, and everything would be wrapped up by the end of the year. Because I had been, you know, it had been communicated to me by some people that it was more of a rubber stamp. It wasn't 
going to be a big thing. Right. When it transitioned to a search and a broader thing, um, the first set of interviews were scheduled while I was in Chicago. Yeah. Making this record. Right. And, and this had been on the schedule forever. Forever. Yeah. So talk about a uh, of awkward situation. Daryl was in Chicago with me for six, seven days making yeah. this record, serving as the producer and, and uh, one of the producers and the music director. He flies, leaves me in Chicago, flies back to Portland. To do this search. Gets on a Skype interview with the rest of the panel for oh, the hire. Oh my gosh. It's like, it was so awkward. It, it was one of the uh, most incredibly awkward things. To interview you. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, um, that is so bizarre. It was, it was truly bizarre. And then, so that was really, really, really hard because I probably, to be honest, the biggest piece of resentment that I have right now still to this day, cause yeah. I've, I'm, I'm good with everything. It was absolutely for the better for me and my life and every, every, yeah. everyone involved, I think. But the, the one piece of resentment that I still hold is that I was not able to be pre completely present in the moment as an artist. Making your record. Making the record, which Ugh. at that point was the pinnacle of, of yeah. all of my life experiences. And I wasn't able to just do that. I had, yeah. to, I had to think about and worry about this other thing. So that's the one thing that still, yeah. still sticks. Still sticks. Um, but, um, but that project had been two years in the making. Um, I had met, um, uh, Brian Blade a couple of years before that. I'm such a and, fan oh, of his. He's, it's a, a actual angel walking around yeah. uh, on earth just happens to be a ridiculous, uh, musician and drummer. He's, he's the best. He's so he's incredible. Good. He, and also like, can I specifically say no one plays a ballad? Like Brian Blade, yeah, no, no drummers, I, yeah. I mean, like I'm not at all surprised that as a vocalist, he's your choice. Yeah, no, I mean, it's we could do a we could do a whole two hour podcast just on not just Brian, but the musicians that were part of that project yeah. and who they are as people. Um, but I had met him and Steve Wilson um, a, a, a few years back and had become friends with Brian and his wife Laura, who's also an absolute angel and just this extraordinary artist. Yeah. Beautiful artist. I have a couple of her originals that wow. she'd given me a couple, couple um, pastels and, um, and, uh, finally after a few sort of fortuitous instances where, um, like we were, we took my dad to new Orleans for his 70th birthday. And, uh, I just sent Laura a text. I was like, Hey, where do we go in new Orleans for, yeah. um, to hear jazz? It was our first time. And she goes, well, actually Brian's in town. He's playing here with John Coward. You should come down and hang out, well, go down and hang out, you know, yeah, you're, just little yeah. things like that. So yeah. eventually I just got up the, the, the courage to say, you know, Brian, like basically you're the, you're the musician I most want to collaborate with yeah. and have for a long, long time. Is there any way you'd consider totally playing on this? And he was like, absolutely. <sighs> he, he didn't hesitate. It was the most, unbelievable moment, really, really unbelievable moment. And, um, so he was on board fully and Steve Wilson, again, incredible person. Um, same thing. He was like, yeah, totally. And just one by one. So I had this dream band in my mind of musicians that some of whom I've been friends with for years. And then people like Steve and, and, um, Brian and, 
so it just came together in this incredible way where we found this week in May and Marquise Hill, who is a former monk competition winner, who's wow. one of the, yeah. the like uh, young lions on trumpet now, he was already going to be in Chicago for another gig. So yeah. they were paying for his flight and they were paying for his hotel yeah. room. And so he's like going to be there, you right? Looped him in. Steve Wilson is yeah. already going to be in Chicago that same time wow. for a gig with Lewis Nash. So um, his manager was like, oh yeah, no, he's already going to be there. Like this is, e- this is easy. Like one by one, all these things wow. like yeah. slide into place. And we found um, a window of time, a six day window of time where, uh, full, you know, full, full, full rhythm section, piano, bass, drums, guitar, plus three horns, plus a string quartet. Oh my gosh. All available. Yeah. And I think that out of all of that, I had to, I think I only had to put one musician up in a hotel for the full time, one for two nights and then one other in an Airbnb. Oh my gosh. So it was just like, it just like happened. Totally yeah. fell, totally That's fell into beautiful. place. So and that was the first record where I did um, predominantly original music or yeah. original arrangements that were mine. Right. Um, that's and that, huge. That's been an unbelievable experience. And at one point in time, when I was doing my album release show in Portland, I just stopped at, at the end. I was kind of talking to the audience and I was like, you know, if this was my last gig ever, I would be able to say that my first public performance had Mulgrew Miller and Elvin Jones on oh my in my band yeah. and my last had Daryl Grant and Brian played. Yeah. I was like, that this is, yeah. is ridiculous. You know, and it, yeah. that was kind of just a really sort of humbling and jarring thing. Cause I yeah. was, I'd been through this, I'd been through this thing mentally while I, we'd done a couple gigs where I turned around and I was like, Brian blades playing one of my songs. Mm-hmm. Like this is, bizarre yeah. and he, he I think he likes it because he's yeah. really enjoying himself yeah. yeah you know he I think he enjoys himself all the time I think because yeah. he's doing what he was meant to do but um anyway so put out that record and um the response was was uh pretty pretty spectacular from yeah uh I I just have I've never gotten th- that many notes from other musicians wow. and um you know and obviously radio people and was um, featured on the front page of Downbeat's website for a, a couple weeks. Oh my gosh! Um, re- beautiful feature in Jazz Times. I mean, just a lot of stuff. But um, one thing really stuck out. I got a uh, this wonderful writer in on the East Coast um, did a review, and in addition to this beautiful review, he sent a separate note to myself and uh, the publicist I was working with, where he he just was sort of saying like, I can't, I couldn't fully express how much this record meant to me in that review. So I just want to take some extra time to tell you like, you know, so little things like that. I can't even imagine. I mean, that's huge. And it's, it's it's the, it's the point at this, at this point in time in the music industry, because um, record sales are just, it's just not a thing unless your name Taylor Swift or, or, uh, little Nas X or whatever. <laughs> I mean, most, I mean, for the most part, you're not going to, you're not going to sell a ton of product. You sell some at, at live performances and things and, um, and streaming doesn't pay artists anything. And so there's, there are ways to, 
to piece it together. But the real currency is to make music that people one, take the time to listen to. And then if it has resonated with them, that's a really special thing. And for them to take the time to tell you that it resonated with them, that's it. That's all. Yeah. That really is, uh, you know, for me, that's, that's, that's success. That's the point. It is. Yeah, that's I success. Love that. That's you know? awesome. Um, so anyway, since the release of the record, um, I, I've been writing a little bit. I, I have my eye on three different projects down awesome. the road whenever yeah. it's time. But, um, the other things that have happened that are really cool is that we've, uh, the first thing is that myself with John Bishop, who, who, uh, again, is the founder of Origin Records. And then my other business partner is a guy named Brian Hurst, who owns soulandjazz.com out of the UK. And soulandjazz.com is a subscription service that has syndicated radio, jazz and soul radio programs. They do these unbelievable video shoots of artists when they come through the UK, multi-camera, HD. I mean, it's really cool stuff. Um, World-class audio quality. They're partnered with Sennheiser on all of their projects. So I met him in New York a couple of years ago. We became fast friends. And one night during a six hour dinner, um, awesome. we came up with this idea. Um, I'd been working on a new kind of fake book that included all of the things that students should address when they're working on a tune. So mm-hmm. transcriptions, history, theory, listening, repertoire, cool. all of it in the same place. Yeah. And I've been working on that since I was in Portland. And when I found out what he was doing with video um, and started to realize John's how, how deep John's roster of it's the 300 plus artists on origin now, wow. most of whom teach someplace. And I just came up with the idea at this dinner. I was like, we should do a video play along platform yeah. where instead of the old kind of Abersold tradition of play alongs, yeah. uh, you can go in and get all of the visual visceral experience that happens when you're playing with a band. Yeah. Um, and so that's what we did. What a great idea. Yeah. So it's called the reality book. Cool. Cool. (laughs) Get it. You guys. um, Yeah. Fake book. Yeah. Cause the real book. And then, but this is video. Um, fake book, real book. Yeah. Reality book. Exactly. There's our, that's our, that should be our tagline. (laughs) Um, so we went to Chicago, we filmed 60, tunes, Holy 60 videos in two days Oh my gosh. with two incredible world-class rhythm sections, Grammy nominated artists. And, um, I mean the, the cats in Chicago, um, and this really cool session. Cause it's, um, one of the things I'm most proud of about the reality book is that when you go to the videos and you see our curators, cause that's the other half of it, we've partnered with artist educators around the country who curate the tunes. So all the other materials I was talking about are all part of every tune, right? There's an exercise, there's a full form solo transcription, all this stuff. So when you go and you check out the reality book platform and we're still in relative infancy, we've been around about a year. I, I didn't know about this. Yeah. And, um, but so one of the things I'm most proud of is when you go and check out the reality book, the videos and the information and everything we're doing, it looks like the music. It's representative of the music. Um, Marlene Rosenberg, incredible bassist from Chicago, played with Joe Williams. Her last record was produced by Christian McBride. Wow. Like she's there. And this young, um, young saxophone player, Leonard Simpson, who's 
part of the Monk Institute wow. uh, or Herbie Hancock Institute, one of the best young uh, instrumentalists in the country. He's on the videos. And wow. so it's like, um, I love that the stuff we were talking about earlier. Yeah. I want people to, I want, I, I hope for two things when you go to the reality book. One, I want a young musician, wherever they're from, whatever their experience and background is, I want them to see themselves in the platform. Yeah. But I also want them to see what's possible. Yeah. Because of who's in the platform, right? Yeah. So, um, so hopefully, you know, not to be cheesy, but hopefully like inspirational and aspirational at yeah, the same time. For right? sure. Um, and I think that that's so important because there is, there are all of these little, these little kind of, I don't know what, I don't know how you describe them. I know you and I've talked about this before just yeah. in, in chats and stuff, but you know, understanding, understanding gender roles and race roles and mm-hmm. how all that stuff has formed the music and yeah. how it needs to be not just respected, but honored and, and like pursued in an authentic way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like making those connections mm-hmm. with musicians because of the music yeah. and, um, and not because what, because they're exactly the same sure. as you, or they have the same experiences right. or yeah. that kind of stuff. So I'm super proud of that. And, um, so the reality book is up and running and we're working with individuals and, and, uh, individual teachers, you know, with applied studios. And now we're working with universities to create, we've created an audition prep platform. Wow. So the university can, yeah. So the university can set up all of the uh, audition requirements. They pick tunes from our library and then they send that to the student and they're like, okay, here's everything you need to prepare for your audition. Yeah. That's, Um, that's awesome. Yeah. That'll really help even a playing field. I mean, I can't imagine how much that would mean to students who have fewer resources. Yeah. That's and, huge. And live in rural areas right. and can't get access to, you know, there, there's like a church marm who plays a little bit of honky tonk piano. Right. Like, yeah. So yeah. So to be able to have uh, that. So, um, so that, that takes up a, a good amount of my time. And then the other thing that's really exciting is um, uh, recently been given the reins to uh, an indie uh, record label and awesome. uh, imprint that is sort of, we have a distribution deal with origin records, but everything else is focused on indie music. So, uh, we've signed four artists so far. That's so and, cool. Uh, um, and it's really, really exciting for me because I feel like it's the culmination of my experiences and my skill set. Yeah. I don't think that I'm probably meant to be, uh, inside the walls of a institution or working mm. with a school, but I do, feel that I have a lot to offer in terms of a mentor yeah. in the, in the music and in writing and in arranging and in, then in taking those next steps to taking your music to the marketplace yeah. and figuring out what you do with it next. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so that's called next records is the name of the record label. Jeff, it's so cool. It's so awesome. I'm so excited for you and I'm like proud of you. Oh, I appreciate that very much. Um, no, that always makes me feel good. Um, and then uh, one last thing, and I, I'm only going to bring it up because it's really kind of beginning to come to fruition within the past couple of weeks. But my sister is a wonderful, as I mentioned earlier, she's a wonderful actress and has been part of that world in New York for years. And two of her close friends are these incredible film and television producers. Wow. And um, we, are, uh, we are going to be f- filming 
uh, a pilot for a documentary awesome. style series uh, jazz competition wow. for high school seniors. Uh, the winner will win a full ride to college. Amazing. And so we're going, so cool. uh, we're going to go shoot the pilot um, end of March, first part of April. Cool. And then we're going to be um, sitting down with, you know, the, the biggies, the, the streaming services. Yeah. I don't know if I can, I don't know if, can you name them on podcasts? Uh, um, no one is. Anyway. I, I don't know. <laughs> it rhymes I with Fletnix <laughs> and <laughs> Snapple Plus. <laughs> Snapple Plus <laughs> should be something. Lou who. Uh, <laughs> You're not good at this. <laughs> I'm not good at this. No, I can't. Anyway, it's fine. It's so, very so that's very cool because awesome. we're the whole idea is I want to I want something that is the anti American Idol, the yeah. anti the Voice. I want something that's, that's about really... celebrating artistry and giving opportunity. Yeah. And because um, I I go I've been all around the country judging competitions and seeing these festivals, and every time I go, I see those kids, and it's like that kid. I know that their story is extraordinary. Yeah. And like I can, I'm doing that same thing. Yeah, like, totally. I totally get that feeling. I mean, I fully, I fully understand. Yeah. Um, um, we, we, I have another interview in 22 minutes. <laughs> I feel like I could talk to you for another two hours. Just bring them here. Um, yeah. <laughs> we'll bring Sean Hancock here. He's That's a good. comedian. Oh, interviewing cool. Him next. Cool. Cool. But I do. So normally I spend like a good, you know, half hour talking with people about, you know, their identity and stuff. Um, and I, I think I'm specifically, the podcast is called artifice and I, I'm specifically interested in, um, you know, the, the, the spaces in between who you are and who you, and what's in your art. So there's that. But really, I think I just want to ask you, like, what do you want to say about like what it means to be an artist, what it means to be a creative, what you wish people knew? Just, it, it can really be anything. Like, yeah. I'll just keep it open. Um, I have to use the restroom. Okay. But I will be back. Pause. Just re- pause. Pause. Um, I did a little series in Dallas in November, and I did three interviews in one day, but it was Dallas. And uh, the there was like an hour in between each interview of driving, you know, like. Yeah. By the end of that day, I was so exhausted. Yeah, and I don't even feel remotely like I feel great right now. Good. I remember I like was about to finish the second interview on that day, and I just thought like I cannot do a third one. But I feel great. I feel yeah. great right now. Good. Okay, so we're we're back from a potty break. Sorry. You're a human person, and like you said, a vocalist who's drinking a ton of water. Yeah, I drink. It's I, important. I get I get three gallons three or three liters a day. You got to do it. Yeah, I do the same thing. Look, I have. Mine has a green tea packet in it, but we've got the same size water bottle. What kind of green tea? Is it HP green tea? It is. I have that myself. Really? Yes. I love it. Mm-hmm. It makes me drink so much more water. Yep. And especially when I'm traveling, like, yeah. Do you do Put one Have you tried the pink? Yeah. You, the pink, the uh-huh. pink flavor? Yeah. I do one pink, like I'll do a bottle like this and I'll do one pink and one like raspberry cream. Yeah. Or I Mine's tried blackberry wa- cream. It's yeah. Blackberry cream's really good. And I just tried their watermelon one and it's okay. Yeah. It's like, I was hoping for like, I basically just wanted a Jolly Ranch, like a watermelon yeah. Jolly Rancher. Yeah. It wasn't quite that, but we're giving a green tea HP plug right now. That's right. <laughs> Maybe I should get them as a, as a sponsor. You should get them as a sponsor. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Um, okay. Yeah. So I, I, you know, like I said, normally this portion of the interview is several questions, but like, I've just enjoyed talking with you so much. So, um, really just any, what, what do you want to say about like your artist identity? Wow. I know it's, it's a huge question. Yeah. You're not going to be able to say all of it. Um, I don't know. I guess I, I, I think I would like to use this time. Yeah, please. <laughs> um, to impart some wisdom that I've gotten that I just think is really, really powerful. Um, the first thing is like, I call it, I call it the Brian blade sort of mentality, which is <clears throat> we were, we were in, we were in Chicago recording the record. He was going from that recording session with me to Washington DC to play with Nora Jones at, um, the Kennedy center. Wow. And then he was going from there to the West coast to do something for Joni Mitchell. Oh my gosh. And then it was like a month with Chick Corea. Okay. Cow. So it's basically yeah. like three of the best gigs that anyone could possibly have Yeah, all in a row. Yeah. And I just asked him, I was like, what is that? Like, what's that like? Yeah. Like, not, not, I just want to know what that's like to be able to, you know, to have your life as an artist be that. That full. and Yeah. And yeah. I'm paraphrasing here, but basically what he said was, I get to play the music I love with the people I love. Yeah. And that resonated so deeply with me. And I realized that I was already pursuing that without being able to codify it in my mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think that that's number one, two, and three. Yeah. You should make art, people should make art that they love and they should do it with people that they love yeah. and people that they respect and people that amplify their soul. Um, I love that. I want to ask you, what is, what is the relationship between like who you are as a human mammal and the art that you make? Like, what do you feel? Um, what do you feel about that? Well, I can, I can tell you that I am, I am, I still, I still see myself more as a storyteller, as an artist. And what I mean by that is that m much of this music that I write is not draw. Like I don't pull from personal experience. Yeah. I like to, way. I like to write stories about something I've seen, mm. or I like to take a small thing and extrapolate out. Yeah what could be possible. Like, um, and there's some instances where I'll use, um, one tiny thing as a prompt. Sure. Right. That's, yeah. that's how I refer to it. It's I, like I an artistic to, prompt. I try to do the same kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. and so I think what's, I think I do that because that's healthier for me. Yeah. Um, I also do that because I think that my writing is better that way. Yeah. I think that if I were to limit myself to my own, autobiographical stuff. Yeah. I, I wouldn't want to listen particularly yeah. to a lot of that. I think yeah. I'd be done after one or two songs at the most. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that's cool about that is it allows me, we were talking about earlier, it allows me to write for other people, I think in a mm. better way Yeah. because it's, it doesn't. So I think about it as like common human experience and common human emotions and these things that anybody can relate to when you kind of, you reduce it down to what you're talking about, like 
songs about love, songs about loss, songs, songs about, um, joy, songs about, um, you know what I mean? Like, uh, connecting with, uh, other elements in the, in the world, nature yeah. or connecting with I mean, spirituality, spirituality or, yeah. you know, things like yeah. that. So you've got these, you've got these common things that every person has experienced. Right. And so what you can do is you, if you tell a story that leads them to that, totally, then it becomes, you're giving them context to listen to totally. the music. I say um, this all the time. Like the range of human experience is infinite, but the range of human emotion is it's pretty small. Yeah. Like we only ever feel. So if you can, you know, for, for us, it's songwriting, but if you can, if you can write a song that captures an emotion, then it's everybody's. Yeah. 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 My comp, like my composition teacher in college would always say, <laughs> he'd say, he'd say, nothing's, nothing's been original since God and the creation. So stop trying. Yeah. And but that was, it was he's sort of his way of saying cheeky, like, but well, he's, he's sort of his yeah. way of saying like, there's only so many notes. There's only so many right. rhythms. What I want to know is like, what has led you to combine them in this way totally. in this moment? Totally. And that was like, oh yeah, no, that's, that's cool. That's a cool way to think about yeah. music. I'm not, I'm not going to try to write something no yeah. one's ever heard before, because if I just write what I'm go what it, what it is that I'm hearing and what it is that I'm like need to get rid of, like we were talking about earlier, yeah. then that's going to be original. Right. You know, right. Automatically. Yeah. I talked about that. I interviewed Ryan Nielsen for this podcast. Cool. You should listen to it. It's one of my favorite episodes. Yeah. Um, and he talked about that, like to do the thing that only you can do. Yeah. Um, that's really beautiful. Okay. I always ask people at the very, very end at, on this day, what is your dream collaboration? You're already doing some of them. So tell me a new one. Oh, who, man. who would you love to work with? Um, or you could put together a whole team. That's also acceptable. Yeah. I, uh, I would love, uh, there are, there are a variety of musicians that I would like to work with, but I would really like to do a record with Troy Miller. He's produced, uh, uh, Laura Mavula. Cool. Um, She's so cool. Just, just recently done some records with Gregory Porter. Um, and Becca Stevens, he did a record wow. with Becca Stevens. He's in the UK and, um, he just, I just, I like his perspective. Yeah. I mean, you can sort of see, you can see his different influences. Um, but the thing that's really cool about him is that he, he looks like a person that can execute whatever idea comes into the room. Yeah. Like that's really special. Yeah, it really is. It's sort of that it's, it's, it's another skill, right? Like, yeah. I know musicians who can play whatever they hear. Yeah. Um, and that's an, its own special skill, but like for someone to be, I just feel like he's the kind of, uh, artist and producer where you could be like, well, it's sort of like this record, but it's a, you know, and you could speak in these crazy yeah. abstract and he'll, and he'll be like, be like Oh, you. like this. That's and then does amazing. It. So, um, I'm so not that person. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't think there are very many people like that. Yeah. I, I do think that's it's a very incredible. unique um, skill. So I've never met him. I'm hoping sometime maybe Becca will introduce us. Yeah. Um, but I would say, you know, just in sort of thinking about it, it would be really cool to do, to do a record with him. Amazing. I yeah. love that. Um, yeah. tell us where we can find your stuff. Well, uh, yeah. The plugs, this is the plug yeah, section. This of is the, the plug section. Uh, and I didn't even have to eat hot sauce. Have you, <laughs> do you watch that? The YouTube no. series where they, you need to check this out. Hot, it's called hot ones. And it's an interview and each question is harder. Oh. 
And each question comes with a different chicken wing with a hotter sauce. That sounds great. It's incredible. I actually, now that you're saying this, I saw a thumbnail on YouTube yesterday for like Margot Robbie doing that. Yes. So Uh, you've seen the, um, I'm sure you've seen the meme of Paul Rudd going, uh, who or look at us, who ever thought we'd be, you know, he's like, I haven't seen it. Okay. Anyway, that's but I from love the, Paul Rudd. Yeah. So I had a crush on him. He's one of the only, he's one of only three people who've done the whole thing without drinking any water. Uh, Paul Rudd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, sorry. But, um, yeah, check out hot ones. It's on YouTube. Um, uh, yeah. So my, my website is, uh, jeffbakerjazz.com for, okay. for all things Jeff Baker and then the realitybook.com obviously awesome. for, um, if you're interested in checking out the reality book and the platform and everything like that. And then, um, the, uh, next music company, next music company, um, Instagram. Uh, yeah. And, uh, the Instagram, I think Instagram is the Jeff Baker. So is my Twitter handle, cool. the Jeff Baker, not and, Snapchat. No, you, I mean, you can, I'm on, I'm on there, but I'm not on there. <laughs> like I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> Don't look for Jeff on TikTok. Yeah, no, I'm not going to be on TikTok. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the real, it's reality book jazz, I think is the Instagram and next music co I want to say. For awesome. I'll Instagram grab the links handle. from you and put them in the show notes. Oh yeah. Appreciate that. Jeff, thank you so much. We've been kind of like, you know, online friends and seeing each other at a gen conference friends for a couple of years. And it's so nice to be able to just like sit and talk to you and get to know you better. No, this was really fun. And I, I just have, uh, I have so much respect for who you are as a person Thank you. and, um, and I have a lot of respect and admiration for, um, all the ways that you let people in to who you you. are and allow that to be part of your process. Yeah. Because I think that, I think that's what it is. I think that by allowing people to, see what you're going through. It helps you. It helps them. That's really rich. Thank you. Um, I, think so. Life. I, so I really that, appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. So, Thanks. And this was a pleasure. Total pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Artifice. Our music is by Jerem Hansen and artwork by Sarah Keel. If you'd like to recommend a professional artist for an interview on the podcast, please send me a note through my website, emvocals.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again. Have a great week.